I'm going to read Titus 2, 11-15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. It's so good to be with you guys. This is like greetings from Elmira. Love being here and hearing you guys sing. It's just so encouraging to be with other churches and to see us serve the same Lord, the same Christ, to see his grace at work. You guys, it's awesome. The last few weeks, I believe, since Dave has been gone, I feel bad that I'm here when he's not here. I haven't seen him in a while. Um, But the last few weeks, you guys have had other people come in and preach through Titus. As you've been looking at Paul's letter to Titus, um, I'm trusting that they um, brought out a particular theme and that you've noticed a particular theme throughout this whole letter so far. The theme of sound doctrine. Sound meaning healthy. What is good for us. In chapter 1, if you look back and just think about what you guys have been hearing here, Paul says that he is an apostle. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, sound doctrine, which accords with or leads to godliness. So his apostleship was so that the elect are saved for their faith, but that they have knowledge of this truth that leads to godliness. In verse 9, Paul charges the elders in the church to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Because the church in Crete not only had to deal with a society that was known for being difficult and immoral, but they also had to deal with this group of false teachers that were promoting unsound, unhealthy doctrine. These false teachers, according to Paul in verse 16 in chapter 1, they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. In other words, they were behaving like the stereotypical Cretans of the day. They were detestable, Paul says, disobedient, and they were unfit for any good work. That's a key we'll see this morning. In other words, their doctrine did not lead to godliness. So in contrast to this unsound teaching that the false teachers were bringing, Paul says that the elders were to give instruction in sound doctrine and, chapter 2, how to teach the church how to live in a godly manner consistent with, fitting with, that sound doctrine. And that's what Titus 2, 1 through 10 was all about, which I believe you looked at the last two weeks, the older community, the younger community, the entire church, So both sides of the aisle here, everybody, everybody in the church was to live in a way that would, I love this phrase, that would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's a very strange phrase. How do you put on doctrine? How do you adorn it? That's kind of what, it's the word that means you set things in place to make them attractive, make it beautiful. It's an interesting phrase, but we'll see how it it pans out. In other words, the church here was to live in a way that makes the doctrine of God attractive to the world. But what exactly is this sound doctrine? It's great to say that. Teach sound doctrine. Cool. What is it? What is the truth that leads to godliness? What is this trustworthy word that the elders were to teach? That the church was to proclaim and portray to the world? What's the doctrine that the church has to adorn? 
The answer to all these questions, according to our text this morning, is simple. The answer is grace. This passage is arguably one of the most concise and beautiful explanations in the entire New Testament of what it looks like to live a gospel-centered or gospel-driven life, a life of doctrine and devotion. It is a dense passage that could probably be a sermon series all in of itself. So to boil it down into 40, 45 minutes is there are so many facets of this diamond that we will not get to. So I would encourage you guys to just read it a hundred times this week and just pray it, thank God for it, read it over and over, and meditate. But there are some things that we can look at and learn this morning. In this passage, Paul reminds us, he reminds the church that God's grace is the grounds for our godliness. That's the pastoral way to put it with all the G's. God's grace is the grounds for our godliness. In other words, what we'll see here is that those who live in the light of God's grace are those who live a godly life, who can live a godly life. So this morning we're going to look at grace, the multifaceted word that will take eternity to fathom the minds of. But this morning we will see three things. Um, First, we're going to see what grace does and that grace brings salvation. Look at verse 11 with me. The word that begins this whole passage is the word for. Bible study 101 That word means you need to look to see what's coming before it because this word is a linking word. It connects this passage with what came before it. The word for here means that these verses serve as the reason behind or the grounds for all the commands in verses 2 to 10. In those verses, as you saw the last two weeks, you can scan over it now, all the commands, the commands that they're told to do, We see um, in this section here a portrait of godly living. But in these verses that we'll look at this morning, we see the power for godly living. So we saw the portrait of godly living. You guys saw that the last two weeks. These verses are the power for that godly living. And all of it begins with and is made possible by God's grace. It's a word that's thrown around a lot. It's on every single sign in Hobby Lobby, probably, and it's everywhere. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a common word, um, but there's, and there's so many facets to it. Grace, simply put, is the gift of God's unmerited blessing and favor. It's a gift. Grace is God's utterly undeserved goodness and mercy toward us in spite of our sin and covenant breaking. It's one thing to say grace is unmerited favor. Okay, cool. It's another thing to say that grace is God's unmerited favor in spite of all of the covenant breaking and lawlessness that we've committed. It's a deeper, there's so much going on here. Um, There's a famous theologian who died a few years ago. His name was John Webster. And I love how he puts this. He says, Grace is God in all of his infinite blessed goodness looking upon the ruin of the human situation and acting to heal, to repair, and to renew. God's grace has many aspects to it. There are many things you can highlight when you say the word grace. Grace can mean lavish. It's a, it's a lavish, super abundant. It's an unceasing, long-lasting gift. Grace can also mean, and in this case it's true, it's given before any initiative by the recipient. And, it gets better, it's given without regard to the worth of the recipient. And it's on every page of Scripture. It's the theme of Scripture. God is, yes, God is the main 
character. God is the theme of Scripture. Grace is also a theme of Scripture. In the Old Testament, God's grace is described in a particular way, which I think is appropriate, as we'll see this morning, and I think Paul is using this intentionally. In the Old Testament, God's grace is described as his shining face that brings salvation and blessing. Think about Numbers 6, the famous ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's what the psalmist prays. I've been in my Bible reading, I'm in the Psalms now, and almost every psalm, if not every other psalm, is the psalmist's prayer for God to be gracious to him. May God be gracious to us, Psalm 67 says, and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? That your way may be known on the earth, that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, and that your saving power is known among the nations. So the psalmist is praying that God is gracious to him or that he would be gracious, make his face shine in him, so that God's way is known throughout the world and the nations are saved. That is precisely why I believe Paul, who knew his Old Testament way better than all of us combined, says that God's grace has appeared. It's that word that uh, we get a word epiphany from that. This is why this passage is read according to like the church calendar from our history. This is usually read on Christmas Day because this is all about the appearing, as we'll see. This word here in our passage, appear, is used to translate the Hebrew word for shine in all these Old Testament passages. So what Paul is saying here, and this is remarkable, is that the psalmist's prayer for God's face to shine has been answered. This passage, what we're going to see, spoiler alert, what Jesus did, that's the answer to the psalmist's prayer ultimately. But how? That's the other question we look at this. In verse 11, it says, The grace of God appeared. The question is, when? For those of you that know your Bibles, that are born-again believers, you know where this is going. You... But we have to ask the question because it helps us understand this. When did God's grace appear? The answer is when. Although Paul doesn't specifically say it in this verse, he's kind of assuming that his congregation is tracking with him. The answer is grace appeared when the word became flesh, John says. When Paul is talking about the grace of God here, he's using that phrase here to sum up God's saving activity in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when you say God's grace has appeared, God has always been gracious. God has never not been gracious. God is only ever gracious. He's been gracious since he created Adam and Eve in the garden and decided to bless them and promise the gospel and the seed. And the... God has always been gracious, yes. But his grace, which Titus in Titus 3.4 is described as his goodness and loving kindness. It's a beautiful picture. That grace has appeared fully, perfectly, and finally in Jesus Christ. Just like Hebrews 1 says that, of course God has always been a speaking God. That's, that's the beauty of God, is that he's there and he's not silent. But Hebrews says that he's, he's finally, he's spoken in his son in these last days. Same ideas here. God has always been gracious. But this grace, God's grace is a person. It's not some idea. It's not some abstraction. It's not some hope or some dream. It's a person. And this person was visible. It was real. This is what John, the apostle, tells us in his gospel. In John 1, the famous passage, when he says that Jesus was full of grace and truth and that from his fullness, because Jesus was Israel's God, from his fullness of deity, we have received, what? Grace upon grace. Which is another verse that could take years and months to just marvel at. But John agrees here that Jesus was full of this, grace, um, of this truth and grace. 
And what does it say here? When this grace appeared, what did it do? It brought salvation and made it available to everyone, both Jew and Gentile, men and women, young and old, slave and free, kings even, in First Timothy or Second Timothy. This, this gospel, this grace that appeared wasn't for the rich only. It wasn't for just the smart. wasn't just for the talented. It, was, it has appeared and it brings salvation to all. That's in, in, in context here, that's what we see this word all means. But in this verse, that's all Paul says. God's grace has appeared and brought salvation. And you're like, who, how, where, when? All those, those questions. If you look down at verses 13 and 14 in this passage, which kind of are parallel, you see like themes in verses 11 and 12 show up in verse 14. Paul spells out this salvation and gives us a, a little exploration into it. Look at verse 14 where, where he talks about our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Friends, this is the good news. The man Jesus, whom Paul identifies boldly as our great God and Savior, he gave himself for us. He gave himself. Think about that. This God in his grace gave himself for us in Jesus to save us, to rescue us from the lostness, the suffering, the condemnation that we brought on ourselves. Jesus gave himself for us. He entered our lostness, our, our suffering, our condemnation. He took all that we deserved onto himself for us in our place. That's what it means when Jesus gave himself as a ransom, Mark says. We were lost. He gave us a home. We were strangers and he gave us fellowship. We were polluted with sin and he cleansed us. We were condemned and he made us righteous. In redeeming us, as we'll see, he pays for our release. He sets us free, not only from the curse of sin, but from its power. But to whom does this apply? We know that this salvation has appeared and is now available to all. But how do we receive this gift of grace? If you notice in our text this morning, Paul says it trains us. There's this group, there's this us. It's our great God and Savior. He's our Savior. So there's a group that this applies to. How do we receive this grace, this redemption? It's simply by faith in Jesus. Paul doesn't go into this big doctrine of faith here as he does in Ephesians and other places. But it's simply through faith in Jesus, through trusting in the person and work of Jesus for us on our behalf. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But that's exactly what qualifies us to receive it. That's why it's grace. That's why it's a gift and not a wage. So Paul's not telling the church in verses 1 to 10 to live in a godly way so that God's grace will appear. Do you see that? That's not what he's saying. Teach them to do this and for younger women to do this and older women to do this and young men and slaves and everyone to do this so that God will show up and say, here you go. Congratulations. No, it's reversed. He says that God's grace has first appeared. And now it's available to you. So for those this morning, living with a burden of sin and guilt, the answer is to bring that burden straight to Jesus. Receive his gift of salvation. For he is gracious and kind. And he promises to shine his face on you. So Paul is saying here, if we look at just this verse, just verse 11, we must adorn the doctrine of God. We must do these ethical commands because God's grace has appeared and has brought salvation. 
So before we move on and focus on what we must do, and there is something that we must do, we have to, we must understand what God has done in Christ for us. That is the launching pad. That is the springboard. That is the ground. That is the beginning. That is where we must begin. Once our eyes are fixed on the grace that brings salvation, then we can more clearly see how grace leads to godliness. That's our second point this morning. If you look at verses 12 and 14, actually. Look at the flow of this passage. The grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So if you notice here how Paul's writing, look at verse 11, and he says that God's grace has appeared. Notice that? Straighten our Bibles. Praise God for our English Bibles. We see what is going on here. It has appeared, past tense. Okay? In, verses, in verse 12 and verse 14, in some sense, Paul now explains the present and the ongoing. That's a key word we'll come back to. It's a present and on, um, it's an ongoing role that God's grace has to change us, to train us, to teach us, to discipline us, to live righteously. So look in this verse here. We see that um, God's grace has appeared. Yes, it brings salvation, but what else does it do? It trains us to do two things. There's a negative and a positive going on here. First, negatively, grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I love that word renounce. It is a very powerful, it's a strong word. This goes beyond simply refusing to pay attention to ungodliness. It goes beyond merely avoiding the allure of worldly passions. Paul's not saying, like, hey, it's, it's cool for me, but, like, I mean, if, if that's your preference, I'm, that's cool. But, but I'll, no, I'm, I'm okay. That's, no, it's not like refusing coffee because you don't like it. And you're like, you can drink it, it's okay. It, this word renounce goes way beyond that. This is rejecting, condemning, and disowning, not the people, that way of life. This is a strong word. This is a word that has been traditionally used when Christians get baptized. Throughout the history of the church, there are many denominations, there are, there are many branches of the faith, orthodox branches of the faith, that have used this language when a, a person was making a public profession of their faith in baptism along with declaring their faith in and allegiance to Jesus in being buried with him in, in that symbol, they would also be asked to renounce the devil, the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world, and the sinful desires of the flesh. It's not just do you trust in Jesus. The question is, do you renounce Satan and all his works and all his empty promises, the worldly passions, to which the person being baptized would respond, I do. That is, that is you waving your hand, making that profession, saying, he's my king, he's my lord, this is my kingdom. It's striking here that that would be used, it's a strong word. This is not just saying, oh, no thanks. This is disowning it. It's not you, disavowing. There's many other synonyms I guess you could use there. We renounce a way of living that is not godly. But positively, grace not only causes us to do that, we're not just supposed to stand off and yell at people that do this or just on Facebook go yell at them. No, that's, that's, not, that's, not, what we're, that's not what we're talking about. Positively, grace also requires us, trains us to do other things. Three things specifically here. Grace trains us not only to renounce these things, but to also live self-controlled, upright in godly lives in this present age. As new creations, as citizens of the Son's kingdom who've been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son, as these new creations, 
we are not to be characterized by sin and lawlessness, but by our king's righteousness. And I think these three words here are used broadly to describe how we're supposed to be righteous, which is inwardly, outwardly, and upwardly. This is like a whole life of righteousness. Think about the first one. Each of these a sermon in its own. Regarding ourselves, we are to live self-controlled. God, help us, please. Holy Spirit, please give us that fruit. I feel like out of all the fruits the Spirit gives, that one seems to not grow the fastest uh, in a lot of us. Instead of making worldly passions our highest aim, we are to find true contentment in knowing God. We don't overindulge in God's good gifts. We enjoy them appropriately in thanksgiving. We don't lash out in anger at others because we have received God's kindness. And we, for those that have experienced this grace, have learned and are learning what it means to be patient, to be forgiving, slow to anger. Regarding others, we are to live uprightly, righteously. Instead of looking to our own interests, putting our own reputations and success above the well-being of others, God's grace teaches us to treat others with honesty and fairness, to seek justice, and to love mercy. Don't care what our world says about those things. We are commanded to do those things. Why? Because we remember the mercy and the kindness shown to us in Christ. And we are to demonstrate that to others. And third, regarding God, we are to live godly. Like Him, we are to image Him, to reflect Him. We are to live in a way that reflects His glory, that doesn't take His name in vain, but that brings him honor and glory in all that we say, do, think. We are to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, shining as lights in this dark and evil age. So here we see that grace has appeared. You could actually say that one of the goals of grace appearing was so that we would look like that. It's not just receive salvation. It's not just that grace shows up make salvation available and God sits back. No. It's not just that we get saved and then God leaves us. No. Paul here is showing us that God's grace appeared training us to renounce ungodliness. Do you see that? Why has God's grace appeared? To train us. But also, verse 14, a parallel to this verse, grace not only trains us, but this is where grace gets even better. This is like a deal that some salesman's giving you that just gets better and better because they want to Grace just gets so much better every time you think about it. Grace not only trains us, it transforms us. Look at verse 14. Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, gave himself for us to, yes, redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Man, oh man, these words are packed with Old Testament meaning. Originally, it was Israel who was the redeemed and purified. Sinai, Exodus 19, God says, you are my treasured special possession to make me known in the earth. It was the ethnic people of Israel. It was at Sinai who had God's face shining on them, literally, in Moses. But now, with the appearance of God's grace in Jesus Christ, Paul here is using this language, speaking of, the true Israel, the church, Jew and Gentile. We see these Old Testament phrases and expressions um, brought to their fullest light. Yes, Jesus gave himself for us, dying, rising again on the third day. And he did that to redeem us from the power of sin and death. We kind of forget that sometimes. It's not just the penalty, it's the power of sin we're redeemed from. But he also gave himself for us, look at this, to purify us. Which not only means to be cleansed, but the Old Testament word here for this idea of purifying 
wasn't just to get cleaned up. It was also to be restored, to be rendered fit for service. So Jesus not only forgives us, amen, but Paul's emphasis here seems to be on this idea of him, his grace training us and purifying us to be his treasured people who are, he says, zealous. That's a very big, strong, crazy word. That's enthusiastic. That makes us zealots. We have a lot of people, take five seconds on social media, and you, there's a lot of people that are zealous for many things. Lots of things. Not really good works, though. But this is what Zechariah, John the Baptist, his father, this is what he prophesied about Christ in Luke 1. Get this. Luke 1, 74 and 75. Zechariah is praising God because he has now in Jesus visited and redeemed his people. Why? That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's our passage this morning. And Zechariah is praising God that he sent his son Jesus so that having been forgiven, having been redeemed, having been bought, freed, we are now free to do what? Serve him without fear. Without fear is a crazy word too in this passage. This passage plainly shows, in a nutshell, how any theological system that attempts to separate obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ from salvation is absolutely out the window. It's contrary to scripture. I think it was before my time, there was some debate about that, how you can make Jesus your savior, not your Lord or something. Like, but when you read it, if you hear that, the first time I heard that, I'm like, huh? Like, how does that even, how does that even work? Like, you're saved, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to another kingdom. Your allegiance is to a king. That's by definition what it means to be saved. This passage shows us that it kind of deals a death blow to that kind of theology that would, that would separate obedience to the lordship of Jesus from the gift of grace and salvation. Those redeemed and purified by Jesus through faith are those zealous for good works. You can't get around it. There's no, but, but notice this. While we're talking about this idea of obedience and serving, notice what, um, how this is written here. There's no fear or hint in Paul's mind here of thinking that these works earn these people anything or replace Christ's work. He's not talking about that. But for those who have encountered and been transformed by this grace, the only thing on their mind is serving the Lord however they can, whenever they can, wherever they can. The 16th century Heidelberg Catechism sums this up quite well. It kind of gets right to the blunt question that people ask, that I ask, that we all ask when we read this and hear this. The question says, we have been delivered, this is question 86, by the way, in the Catechism, if you're interested, we have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? It's a pretty blunt question. The answer. To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. But we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. We do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Imagine teaching your kids that. That's a mouthful. That's the 86th question like that. That's a mouthful. But what a beautiful response to that. These good works, there's no hint in Paul's mind here. He's not saying do these things so that grace will appear. Grace has already appeared. This redemption has taken place. This is the fruit. This is the obedience that grows out of it. So the question, if we have to be honest with ourselves, 
I don't know you guys that well. I kind of do. I hear very good things about you all from Dave and Matt. The question is that, and no one's escaped from this, I should say as well. It doesn't matter how old you are, how long you've been sitting in these pews. It doesn't really matter. The question is, do we live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life? Are we zealous for good works? Are we zealous to serve the Lord at a balloon fest? The last time I was here, I was, it was awesome to see you guys out there doing your stuff. It was awesome. I think we came through and got snacks or something and never, but, so in some sense I can see, yes, praise God for you guys' witness. But, I, but, but this question we still have to ask, are we zealous for these good works? Here's another one. Does our zeal for doctrine lead to a zeal for good works? I believe you guys are doing the Attributes of God class in your Sunday school downstairs. If I saw the stuff correctly, I wanted the seats. Does that, does that glorious zeal for that knowledge, does that fuel a zeal for good works? Is that how we're known? If we're honest with ourselves, we can be quite tempted to forget the grace that has appeared, that we have received. It is very easy in this day and age to be zealous for worldly passions and success. It's very easy. It's getting easier to be very zealous for political nonsense and public politics and all these things that go along with that. It's very easy to be zealous for those things. But if that's us this morning, the solution that Paul gives us is not simply, we'll try harder. The answer that he's framing for us is to look to Jesus. To remember that we have been redeemed, purified, we are treasured by God. That in and of itself, it's not just that God saves us. Isaiah says that he delights in us. Like, that's just, we're his treasured people. And because of that, that's how we live in the light of God's grace. So finally, having seen that grace brings salvation, seeing that grace then leads to godliness, there's another aspect of this passage which makes it so beautiful and so compact and comprehensive, is that grace also brings us to glory. So, if you're following me at all, our text so far has formed the basis for Paul's instructions to the church. He's giving this as the basis or the reason for all his instructions. For, um, and these instructions were to the church for living in the present evil age. Our text so far has reminded us that the goal of God's saving grace in the self-giving of Jesus was to train us to renounce ungodliness and to transform us into a community eager to do good works. But there's more. This grace also trains us to look forward to the final appearing of grace, of God's glory, and the life to come. This is a sweeping passage, if you notice. It takes us from the first appearing to the second. Sandwiched in the middle is the Christian life in verse 12. Look at verse 13 with me. Technically, in the structure of this passage, Verse 13 is the culminating point because verse 14 is like a side note where Paul goes back to explain who this Jesus was. But um, verse 13 here is kind of the hinge. This is, this is where Paul's heading. Look at this. Grace has appeared. It's brought salvation. It trains us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not only remembering God's grace that appeared in the life, the death, the glorious resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. The Christian life is not only about doing good works now. The Christian life is a life of waiting patiently, eagerly, 
for our blessed hope. And that blessed or happy hope, I love that Paul calls it blessed. Probably, it's probably because he knows that the Christian life is difficult and sacrificing on these worldly passions and these ways of life that are so alluring is difficult and challenging. And he's probably using this to remind them of the happiness and the joy that our hope is all about. This blessed or happy hope is not just a place, by the way. Our blessed hope is a person. Do you see that? Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. He is our God and Savior. And He is our great reward. Just as grace appeared with the first coming of our Lord, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that grace will be brought to us when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul could have said something about grace here. He says glory. So grace and glory are in view here. But Peter says that when Jesus has appeared, grace is brought to us. I love that. In the words of the early church father, John Chrysostom, 4th century, magnificent preacher, speaking about this appearing, he said, nothing is more blessed and more desirable than that appearing. Words are not able to represent it. The blessings thereof surpass our understandings. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Paul already has mentioned this in his introduction. If you remember, verses 1 and 2, Paul said that as an apostle, he was to preach sound doctrine. He preached the gospel of God's grace. Why? Look at verses 1 and 2. For the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, there it is, by the way, sound doctrine that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So here we see that in, in our passage, it's that we're waiting for Jesus. In the beginning, it was our faith is for eternal life, our hope is in eternal life. Our blessed hope the appearing of Jesus Christ is eternal life. Growing up, I know I always, I'm always joked, um, there'd be people saying, like, heaven's going to be great because there's like big houses and there's gold streets and you sing lots of songs. And it's like, okay, cool, but like as a kid, I didn't give a rip about gold. Like, nothing I had was gold and I had a great, you know what I mean? Like, that's not the allure of heaven. It's seeing Jesus. It's beholding our God in all of his glory, and having the eyes to see that and to enjoy it in a way that we can't now, that is just, that is our hope. That is eternal life. That is what we are saved for. That is what we are looking towards. But friends, the Christian hope is not like the world's hope. I'm sure you've heard this before. The word hope It's faith in the future tense, I heard someone say once. Hope is just faith, but in the future. It's not merely wishful thinking, like hoping to win the lottery, or hoping that the right political party fixes your problems, which it never will. That's not the hope that Christians have. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. We hope like those who don't understand hope. Our hope is a confident expectation that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion by grace at the day of Christ Jesus, a day that we are eagerly waiting for that will surely come as the sun is sure to rise. We know that God's Son will come back in all his glory. Kelvin says it well. He says, There is nothing that ought to render us more active or cheerful in doing good than the hope of the future resurrection. Nothing. And believers ought always to have their eyes fixed on it that they may not grow weary in the right course. 
I know sometimes it's like if you're too heavenly minded, you're no earthly good or whatever that phrase is. That's the exact opposite here. Being that heavenly minded is what makes us earthly good. That's the fuel. That's the gasoline that just douses like the fire of good works in our lives, to use that metaphor. That's what we look for. Grace hasn't appeared to redeem us, purify us, train us, transform us, only to leave us hoping we make it to glory one day, if we do enough. That's not what Paul is saying about works here. you catch that? Grace hasn't appeared to do all this marvelous, undeserved, powerful activities, redeeming, purifying, training, transforming us, only to leave us hoping that we've been self-controlled enough. Grace also secures us as we look forward to the day when we find perfect peace and rest, fullness of joy, and unending fellowship with our triune God forever. Grace brings salvation. Grace leads to godliness. And it ultimately brings us to glory. It's tempting for us to try and pit grace and godliness against each other. If you notice that the Christian life is filled with a lot of those tensions, you've got camps on either side of a lot of different aspects of different things, word and spirit, faith and works, you know, all those, there's all these like dichotomies and we try to pit them against each other a lot. It causes a lot of the problems in the church that would easily be avoidable if we would just have patience and kindness towards one another and listen. And... But we tend to do this with grace and godliness. We can often make the mistake, two mistakes actually, we can either make the mistake of thinking that godliness leads to grace or that grace nullifies godliness. See the difference there? That's pitting doctrine and devotion against each other. That's pitting grace and godliness. You can either make the mistake of thinking that your godliness will lead to God's grace, or you can think that God's grace just excuses ungodliness. But if we misunderstand God's grace, we will go wrong in our theology very quickly. Right off the bat, actually. If we think that our godliness leads to grace and that our salvation is earned or kept by our performance, we fall into legalism. But guilt and condemnation are worthless and crushing motivators. You ever realize that? Guilt, condemnation, that's not how you serve the Lord. That'll just crush you to despair and leave you bleh. But if we think that grace nullifies godliness and we continue living in, not, not sinning, but this is that making a habit of sinning, this living in sin and impurity and lawlessness, living for the world's passions, the very things which Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from, we fall into liberalism, license, whatever word you want to use, and we take God's grace and his name in vain. These are like two massive pitfalls, ditches that we can fall into. But for Paul, in this passage, grace is the grounds for godliness. It's only those living in the light of God's grace that can live a godly life. What Paul is telling us, what we have to remember is that grace is the only proper motivation and power for our obedience. It is only as we fix our eyes on the grace of God revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus and the glorious grace that will be revealed to us on the last day that we can eagerly do what grace requires of us and what is pleasing to our Lord I think it was John Stott who said that we need to do spiritually what is impossible physically. We need to look in two directions at one time. We need to look back to grace, forward to glory, back to the grace of Jesus at the cross, forward to the grace that will be brought to us. I thought that was a cool way to, to say it, but looking two ways at once, that is the Christian life. 
for those this morning here who have received this grace by faith, if you're anything like me, one of the things that comes to mind when you read this is, I, I believe that, but my life doesn't feel transformed. My life doesn't always match up to this. For those here that struggle renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, remember what Paul has said. Grace trains us. That's an ongoing word. Training, teaching, disciplining. Yes, God's saving grace has redeemed us decisively at the cross. But its power to train and transform us is still ongoing. That's not an excuse, but that's, that's, that's not supposed to be an excuse to be like, oh, whew, sweet, let's go do something, I don't know, lawless. No, that's supposed to be the balm, the comfort, to know that this grace, because we have that desire. We look forward to that day when like, you can almost taste that, sinless, like, that sin will be gone. Like We all have that. And this is showing us is that that will grow as we trust our Lord. As we look to him, that grows. So for those who feel like they're failing in the school of grace this morning, the answer is to look to the appearing of Jesus Christ at his first coming and his glorious second coming. The answer is to remind one another of this amazing grace and to depend on him to help you by his Holy Spirit. Because he will. As we face the challenges, trials, and temptations of this present age, may we regularly and joyfully say to ourselves and to one another the church's great acclamation. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again.